and said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of the land, out of that land into the good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Pray with me. Lord, there's a lot of darkness out in the world, and, uh, but there is a, a path that you've given us. Um, and uh, please just provide a light through your word to guide us along that path to freedom, Lord. And um, keep us open-minded and receptive to the message today. And uh, please bless us as we go about our weeks. Amen. Okay, kiddos, that way. Get out of here. They don't need me to tell them that. They'd much rather go there and have fun. They're already laughing as they go. How are you? What's your name? Oh, wow. Are you going to go to children's? Whoever's kid that is, bring him back. <laughs> okay, we are in a uh, series in Exodus. I've called the series um, The Way to Freedom. I mentioned that if Leviticus is the, uh, if it's the blueprint for holiness, then Exodus is the blueprint for freedom. I love what Jude said just a minute ago about getting up and it was dark. How many of you saw, were early enough this morning to see the sunrise? So a few of you. The rest of you are just lazy? Okay, got it. <laughs> That's why you come to the late service. I get it. So uh, when Jesus was born and his parents brought him into the temple and Simeon was holding him, here's what Simeon said. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. He's holding Jesus. He had been promised that he would see the Messiah. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So when Jude talked about the light, the sunrise coming up is very appropriate to what we're talking about because today is the day in Exodus when the sun, the sky begins to turn light. Okay. Many of the prophets talked about that the people living in the land are living in darkness, a very great darkness. John talks about a light has come into the world with Jesus. But the uh, sunrise began with this chapter, Exodus chapter 3. So let me remind you of where we are kind of in this story. Uh, the Israelites have been out of Exodus for not very long, a couple of months, and they're sitting at the base of Mount Sinai. In Exodus 19, they get to meet God. We'll get to that later on in a few weeks. They meet God. They'd only seen his power. They didn't know anything about him other than what they'd heard. They saw his power, and so Exodus 19 is where he meets them. He introduces himself to them. Then in Exodus 20, Moses goes up on the mountain and gets the Ten Commandments. So the first thing that they hear about God um, is they meet him, and they hear about the Ten Commandments. Cannot, I cannot overstate how critical the Ten Commandments are in world history. Because the Israelites, remember, they're slaves. They don't know much else, okay, at this point. And so 
they get the Ten Commandments, and now they have heard Genesis, and now they're hearing Exodus. They're hearing their story, which is our story. They're hearing their story for the first time. They're hearing how they got to where they were, sitting right there in the sand, where they're going to be um, priests to the world. And they're beginning to learn that they have a different purpose and a God who cares for them. Thanks for reading that, uh, Errol, earlier. And so they're sitting there and they're learning all of this. And so Genesis, the story of Genesis compacted, is that it starts with the creation. Okay, so you get to be God. Why on earth would you, if you take a bunch of slaves out of a nation and you want to form them into your people, why would you start with creation? Okay, most of the time, most people would think when you start with who God is, well, that's kind of what he's doing. Because in giving them the creation story, he's beginning to undermine what we call the Egyptian cosmology, their view of sources and origins and creation and gods. So from the very beginning, the first thing he tells them after the Ten Commandments is let me tell you the truth about how this all came about. And so by telling them that, he's undermining the Egyptian philosophies um, and the nations around that they're about to go into. So that way they get a correct view of the world and therefore they get a proper view of who God is. And so they've heard that story, and then they hear the story of Abraham. I'm sure they've heard of Abraham, word of mouth, but the Bible hadn't been written yet. They're they're reading it for the first time. Moses just got it. And so they're hearing the story of Abraham, Genesis 12, because uh, Genesis 3 through 11 is the story of the destruction of sin and the formation of nations, okay? Yes, God formed all the nations. That's his decision. He is sovereign. He said, he says, I decide which nation to rise up and which nation to destroy. So you got nothing to worry about. Relax. Okay. And so uh, God makes that decision solely on his own merit. So they see, they hear the story of how sin is so destructive and takes them right down into the myriad of darkness. There's no way I can overstate how dark and horrible and destructive sin is. The problem that we have is all of you live with sin. It's part of who you are. It's your sin nature. That won't be eradicated until glory. And so to you, it feels normal. That little white lie just feels normal. It's not a little white lie. That little white lie was enough to uh, torpedo you for eternity. That's how serious it was. There's no such thing as a minor sin. Every sin is destructive, but because we live with it, we grew up with it, it doesn't feel that bad to us. And so we don't know what it's like to have a world not defined by brokenness and sin. That's why theologians talk about this in terms of total depravity. Every single atom in your body has been destroyed and and destructively influenced by sin. Okay? If God doesn't intervene, we're all in big trouble. Okay? That's why the cross is so critical. So don't don't fall into the trap. Sin's not quite that. I mean, it's bad for this guy over here, but not for me, right? One of the reasons I don't preach uh, on specific sins up here, um, when I first got here, I was asked to do that. You know, you need to confront so-and-so because they're in sin. Oh, so I should go uh, make my sermon topic whatever somebody's sin is? Right. Well, here's what happens if I do that. So if I talk about anger, for example, then maybe I'm I'm picking on you because I, I know you. Okay, maybe you got a problem with anger, right, Julie? And so, uh, so today my sermon is going to be about Julie. I'm just not going to mention her name, okay? But here's what Julie's going to do. Julie's going to say, do you know Leslie? She's got a problem with anger. We always deflect to everybody else, right? It doesn't do any good to talk about it from up here. What we need to talk about from up here is the story, 
of what's going on. Okay, sin is destructive. But, but when we read this story of who God is, it's fascinating how he weaves his way into the middle of this broken world for the purpose of redeeming it. And all of scripture then is on that journey of uh, redemption and bringing people to him. He's pursuing every human on the planet to get them to turn to him. And so sin is destructive. You acknowledge it, get used to it. Okay, so they're hearing the story for the first time, and then they read the story of Abraham. They hear it read to them. Wait, God promised Abraham he's going to bless all the nations through the world, through his, through his people? Yeah. Well, isn't that us? Can you imagine them sitting there? Isn't that us? I mean, the questions are going to start rolling off of their tongue as this story unfolds. I've asked several times, try to picture what it's like never hearing this story before. You're a slave sitting in the sand and you get to hear it for the first time and you've never heard it before. It's the most amazing thing. It's fascinating to me after 10 years up here and a lot of years before it in other places, I have, as you know, I've spent time in bars, coffee shops, airplanes, trains, airports, I mean, all over the world and locally talking to people. I've talked to so many people, I have no idea. I just know it's in the thousands, okay, about their faith. And I asked them a question. When you think of God, do you think of God as uh, very generous and kind and loving and patient and concerned for you? Or do you think of a God that's a little bit, well, you better not sin, okay? And so, you you know what I hear all the time? I have never yet had a person tell me, oh, I think of God as very generous and kind and compassionate and concerned and overlooking my sin. No. It's always the opposite. How did we do that? We, pastors, not you, we. How did we do that? Because this story is filled with so much grace, incredible love and patience everywhere we go. When we went through the minor prophets, remember I said God's wrath is vented against the evil people, not against his people, not against the faithful, those that believe in him. So where in the world did we concoct this story that God is so judgmental? And yet that's what's out in our culture. That's what's all around the world. Is that's what kind of God we serve? That is not the case. If you want the clearest definition of who God is, look in the fruit of the spirit. God can only give out of who he is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, wrath, anger, hostility. Oh, wait, those aren't in there, right? You know what I mean? That's the God that we serve. And so one of the most often repeated commands is do not be afraid. That's all throughout the Bible. Do not be afraid. Okay? Moses is going to say it when he gets to Exodus 20. People are terrified because God scares them. Angel says that to Mary. Do not be afraid. Okay? We have a good God. Really good God. And so this story as it unfolds is going to reveal it's like a flower that opens up how great God is and how loving and kind and patient he is. So what they do know is they've heard the Ten Commandments, okay? And now they've heard Genesis. And so after the promise to Abraham, then you have Isaac, Jacob, you know, Joseph, Judah, you know the story. And that's how God is preserving them. And then he sends them down to Egypt. We talked about that last week. So now we've stepped into the story. Now they've been enslaved and beaten. And now they've come out and they're sitting at at the base of Mount Sinai. So what they know is God is really interested in two big things. Two big things, and these dominate the entire Bible. One is freedom. Okay? 
It is for freedom that Christ has set you free, Galatians 5. And quite honestly, that's the essence of human dignity, is freedom. You have choice. You get to choose. No other religion has that. It's all based on faith, coincidence, on and on and on. We don't believe in that, okay? It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. You get to decide. That's the essence of human dignity because God gets to decide and he gives you that choice. He's not going to violate your free will. So freedom, and Exodus is the blueprint for freedom. And the problem is you don't really know what freedom is. Just being honest with you. You think you know what it is because you're an American living here. I'm talking about spiritual freedom. True freedom from depravity. One of these days when we step into glory, we're going to look at each other and our eyes are going to be so wide open and we're going to laugh because we didn't know. We just capture a glimpse of it. Okay? That's the problem. You're still bound up slavery to sin. That's why Paul can argue in Romans 6, sin as a master has been destroyed. It is finished. So why do you keep sinning? Because you don't know any better. I don't either. I'll confess to you, I don't either. Every day is a struggle. One of these days it won't be a struggle. So Exodus lays out that blueprint of freedom, of what does it mean to live as truly free people where we are part of the new creation and the battle is done. Okay, why do we fight the spiritual battle? Not for each other, for the people out here that don't know. That's why we fight the spiritual battle. They're the ones that are being hurt and destroyed and deceived. Okay, if you watch the news, you know what's happening in Israel. All right, you saw what they did to a young German girl. If you looked at the news this morning, you know what's happening in Haiti. The UN just authorized a peacekeeping force to go down there because there's lawlessness all over the place. I just came from there. Guerrillas everywhere. And they're sitting in armed people to start bringing it under control. Everywhere we look in the world, there's, there's horror. There's horror. There's chaos. It's true here, too. It's just spiritual. They're just as enslaved. They are. So they learned about freedom and liberty, but they also learned about morality because the Ten Commandments changed world history. I cannot emphasize it enough. We have enough archaeological finds now to see the law courts, the law codes of several nations before them, before Israel. They didn't have anything about morality, nothing like what the Ten Commandments brought. And the Ten Commandments were that early star coming up before the sun rises to show us the way. And every empire or nation since then that has founded their beliefs on the Ten Commandments has prospered, and those that haven't, don't. It's real simple. It's black and white. You can do the research. I'm not going to do it for you. I've already done it. So, And so uh, the Ten Commandments. So they learned that there is a God who cares about them, who believes in morality, and is teaching something they had never learned in Egypt, and they learned that we were created for freedom because God delivered them from slavery. Now he has the long process of helping them wrestle with the slavery that captures every human. And that's what Exodus really is all about. So as the story unfolds, Moses is actually telling the people about himself. Okay? He's telling his story. And so what happens with him? Well, 40 years before this, he kills an Egyptian. Why? Why would he do that? He's one of the, he is one of the top 30 people, privileged people in the nation, raised in Pharaoh's court, Pharaoh's family. And he kills an Egyptian. That's a capital offense, punishable by death. He had to leave. Why did he do it? 
because he knew that he was supposed to lead Israel out of Egypt. He just decided to do it his own way. And he had to leave. So now we're 40 years later, and he's standing here reading this to them. So they now know that he killed an Egyptian. They know that. And they also know, based on verse 1 of chapter 3, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. That's where they're sitting. Right then, while they're listening. So this is on the other end of this, this part of the world. Moses went as far away as he could. He went into the back wilderness to get away. A little bit like Paul. Paul disappeared into Arabia for three years in the desert when he found out that he had been crucifying Jesus, killing Christians. Moses disappeared. I can't imagine the shame. Okay, useless. He's 80 years old now. Obviously, he misunderstood God's plan because God didn't bless him or support him or doing anything. So he's hiding out on the other side of the wilderness. He's telling the Israelites this. Why? Because he becomes a model for what we are to be like. And so Moses is telling them the story, and as he tells the story, the sun begins to rise. It gets lighter in the sky. Light begins to appear. That's what happens. So he's 80 years old. He's given up. It's been 40 years since he killed the Egyptian. By the way, a good study if you want to have fun is go look at the great leaders in the Bible and pay attention to the little details that how long it takes, and you'll learn something very quickly. Uh, Isaac, he prayed that God would bless Rachel, and he'd have a child. He said God blessed him, she got pregnant. But if you read it carefully, it was 20 years later after his prayer. Moses, 40 years later. If you start studying the great people in Scripture, what you find out, there's a principle. The earlier you are in your Christian walk, the less God lets you accomplish great things for his glory. Okay? That's the way we often express it. That's just plain theological garbage. Okay? What he does is he's working in you to transform you. And so I work with all these young pastors that are struggling. They're feeling the anxiety and the tension of having to perform and the the arrogance that comes from from having so much knowledge and not knowing what to do with it. Okay, these young pastors, we, we bury our pastors. That's what we do. They're responsible to control the heating and air conditioning, all the budgeting and the billing, the sick and the weddings and the funerals and the preaching and all of that. They have no time to study. So when they study, their sermons often aren't that good. And they're carrying the weight. And not only that, but they are the expendable sheep. Okay, they're the sacrificial lamb when the church doesn't do well. They're gone. You know how long a pastor stays in their office in the United States in today's world? Two years, 11 months. That's it. We are crushing our pastors with weight. And they don't know any better. They have a lot of knowledge about Greek and Hebrew. Okay? Not to boast, but after eight years of Greek and five years of Hebrew, you can't touch me. That's not a boast. I'm saying, what do you do with that information? And these young pastors, they carry the burden of that. And they wrestle with it. Okay? And they have to make sense. So Moses becomes a paradigm in himself, a model of what God does. So when you look in Scripture, the earlier you are in your Christian walk, the less, the more concerned you are about having impact, and the more God says, I don't think so. Let's start working in your life. 
And then as you wander, I've been a Christian 44 years, been through a lot. And as you wander through life, then you begin, your heart begins to soften, it should, and you begin to not care so much about influence, you know? You care more about loving people. And that's when God begins to put you to work. So I deal with these young pastors all the time, and they ask me in the question almost every class, what do we do? How do we develop a servant? I mean, we can understand the, the wording behind it, the language, but how do we become servants? And I said, oh, that's easy. Let God hit you with a baseball bat over and over and over and over and over again and never give up on your faith because it's not about what you accomplish for God because honestly, he doesn't really care about that. And we're gonna see that right here. It's what God accomplishes through you because you're faithful. And our young pastors have to hear that and so do you. It's not about making an impact for the Lord. It's about being faithful and the Lord does what he wants with it. You know, I lost, many of you know, I lost my first wife. You know, cried my eyes out when she died. I was holding her when her heart stopped. You know, and then I asked the question Moses, he's getting ready to answer, to ask, who are you, God? I'm 25 years old. You took my wife away. Who are you? Then I got bladder cancer. You guys know that. I get tested every year. Uh, They expect it to come back. It may come back. I don't know. That's in the Lord's hands. I don't care anymore. I don't care. I don't deal with a lot of anxiety anymore. That's why a lot of you laugh when I get on an airplane. If something doesn't happen when I'm going overseas to teach, I change what I'm going to talk about because it's not even important enough for Satan to come after me. Right? He does come after me. But that's a lot of years of walking and relaxing and learning to trust the Lord. And Moses is 80 years into it. And he doesn't, he's not interested anymore in leadership. And that's when God decides to use him. One of the mistakes we make today is, is we promote young pastors way too early into mega churches with celebrity status. Churches, I follow all the studies that look at pastors right now. As far as I can tell, pastors are now falling uh, one to three every week in the United States. That's how bad it is. We're putting them in way too early. They're doing things they shouldn't be doing. So, but God has a different plan. Here's what he says. Exodus 3, chapter 2. And Moses is on the back part of the world. There, where Moses is, angel of the Lord, appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw the bush, was on fire. Then he looks over and he goes, what is that? And he walks over. You know the story. God says, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. I've asked that question before. Why is the dirt here not, uh, not holy, but the dirt 20 feet away is holy? Because of God's presence. Whenever God shows up, that's a temple. It's hysterical that he chose his first temple to be a bush. I just love this story. The, the, the double entendres and the things that come out of it, the nuances. We could talk just on this chapter for a whole year. It's so fascinating. He chose a temple. He chose a bush for his first temple. It's pretty crazy. We're going to see it throughout the Exodus that he has more than one temple. It's wherever he is. That's where the temple is. So, then God tells Moses, he repeats his concern. He hasn't asked him to do anything yet. He just showed up and says, let me tell you what I'm thinking. This is verse 7. Errol read it. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering, so I've come down to rescue them. Okay, so God repeats his concern. And then it gets really dicey for Moses. Verse 9. 
Now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, so now go. I am sending you, you, back into the lion's den. I am sending you to go talk to Pharaoh to bring my Israelites, my people, out of Egypt. World history in the making right here. You're Moses. You're giving up. You're 80 years old. What are you going to say? I don't think so. What does Moses say? Who am I that that I should go to Pharaoh? Right? We're going to look at Moses' objections, but what I want you to see here, up until this time, and this is important when he gives us his name, through all of this discussion, before he tells Moses what he wants, the pronoun I occurs eight times. I have heard the groanings of my people. I am concerned. I am going to deal with it. I'm going to make it happen. Okay? It's not you, Moses. It's me. I'm going to do it. So I I titled this sermon, An Unlikely Deliverer. Why? Because who's the deliverer? It's not Moses. It's God. That's who the deliverer is. He just is looking for one person that's going to be faithful so he can demonstrate his power and his glory. So whenever God answers a question in Scripture, it's, it's always amazing. It's very intriguing how he never really answers the question. He answers the question that ought to be asked. He does that with the Samaritan woman. Never really answers her question. He answers questions that she should be asking and guides her down a trail. When he goes to the woman, the, I'm sorry, the man and John, who's laying beside the pool at Bethesda, and uh, he's been waiting 38 years to try to get into the water so he could be healed. That was a, um, that was a thought at the time that he could only get in the water, they'd be healed. He walks up to him and asks the most absurd question in the Bible. Do you want to be healed? Well, the guy's been trying for 38 years. Okay? See, that's not the real question. The real question is, are you sure? Think about what this means if I heal you. You're no longer a victim. No longer entitled. Our benevolence committee wrestles with that with people all the time. If we solve this problem, you're no longer a victim. Are you sure you want to be healed? So whenever God answers a question, it's usually answering a question that should have been asked. So here's Moses who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Okay, what's the real question? Why me? I've already failed miserably at everything I've tried. I'm now tending sheep a long ways from civilization, and you still found me back here. Why me? So God doesn't say it's because I prepared you for this. He doesn't say I trained you. He doesn't say you're really skilled in all these wonderful things. He doesn't say anything. He didn't say it's because you're a great guy. No, he's like us. Sinful, broken human. What does God say? I will be with you. You're not alone. You're not alone. That's really the deeper question that he's asking. I'm just a failure. Everything I've done has been bad. And you want me to go? Why me? Because I'm going with you. That's why. So then in verse 13... Moses asked the second one. 
Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What am I going to tell them? Okay? What am I going to tell them? What's the real question? The same question I asked when my wife died. Who are you? You just found me on the back of the desert. Who are you? The gods never gave their names. And here God is talking to him. Who are you? Okay, now this is where he gives a divine name. A lot of controversy around this name, but put it in the context. He just said eight times, I have seen the misery of my people. I have heard their crying. I am concerned about their suffering. I have come down to rescue them. Okay? And so I am sending you. And so I have seen the way of the Egyptians. He, he sees their plight. He sees your plight. You never have to worry about God is concerned about what's going on with you. He sees it. It's clear to him. So he just, all that stuff, all the many times he says, I, 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 I. What's his name? I am. I am. Yahweh, Yahweh. I am, I am. Translated in English, it's hard to translate I am who I am. But it also has a future element. You could translate it, I will be what I will be. And so what's amazing is that his name is a first person, not third person. He is. He is over there. I am right here. And so when he gives his name to Moses, he's bringing them right in to the interpersonal relationship that we all enjoy. Yeah, Moses, I found you on the backside of the desert. I am your God. I will be with you. You have nothing to worry about. Well, Moses uh, doesn't stop there. (laughs) I'm jumping over like passages. You can read the in-between stuff. Chapter 4, Moses answered. This is his third objection. What if they do not believe me or they don't listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Why would he think that way? Because what happened 40 years ago when he killed the Egyptian, what did the Israelites say? Are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian? They turned on him. They didn't believe him. That's his history. They didn't believe him. So the real question he's asking is, will they reject me? Isn't that a fear we all have? A rejection. Don't we work really hard to make ourselves look good? Someday, if you want to have coffee, I'll tell you my own story. I was terrified that somebody would look under the hood. When I went to college, I graduated from high school with a 1.8. Then I went to the Navy, managed to get my way into the nuclear program, and I was immediately surrounded by very brilliant people, and I was not one of them. I failed physics, chemistry, got Ds in algebra and geometry. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. They sent me to remedial math and science school so I could come up to speed. So when I went to college, I was pretty terrified. So I checked out every book in the library on the subject I was going to take in college and read it before the class. I didn't get A's, I got 100s. Because I was terrified that you would see the truth. And that motivated me. And this is what he said. What if they reject me? And so what does God answer? This one I just laugh at. He said, it is my power. If they reject you, they're rejecting me. And he uses two symbols. Throw your staff on the ground, it becomes a snake. Pick it up by the tail. Now, I don't have anything to do with snakes. That's not my world. But it seems to me that picking a snake up by the tail is not the best thing you can do. 
But he picks it up, becomes a staff again. Then he says, stick your hand inside, now it's a leper. Those are the two predominant symbols of evil in the ancient world. So what God is now saying is, I have power over evil. You have nothing to worry about. You have nothing to worry about. Moses is not done. Verse 10, I love this one, because this relates to all of you. Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow speech and tongue. How many times have I heard you people say, how come you don't share the gospel? I'm not very good at it. That's Moses. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's Moses. I'm not very good at speaking. And what does God say? These are my words. They're not your words. You have nothing to be afraid of. You're afraid of the guy that's going to out-argue you and box you in the corner. You're not going to get that guy. That's the guy I get because I live for that guy. I love it when they come after me in a bar. I just, oh boy, my eyes start twinkling. That's not you, okay? They're God's words. They're not my words. They're not your words. My words, my ways are not your ways, Isaiah says, okay? As far as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. They're not your words. And he has to say that to him, but he does it in a particularly interesting way. Look at what he's admitting to here. God, verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, who gave human beings their mouth? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? I am God. I decide. That's my decision, not yours. Now go. I will help you speak, and I will teach you what you are to say. Isn't that what Jesus said to the disciples when the Holy Spirit came? He will teach you everything you need. You have nothing to worry about. Nothing to worry about. You just got to be bold and courageous. Well, Moses is still not done. (laughs) I love the last one. Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. <laughs> he finally gets down to it. He just doesn't want to do it. And God says, shut up and go. Okay? He didn't quite say it that way. That's my translation. What does he say? I know. So guess what? I'm going to send Aaron so you're not alone. Okay? He can speak. What did Jesus say? It's necessary for me to depart so that the Holy Spirit can come and be with you. This is the early paradigm of what we all go through right here. And Moses becomes the example. Moses has to learn that it's not about how good he is, it's about how faithful he is. Do you see the difference? It's a fundamental... And then we have the most intriguing verses in Scripture. Verse 24, at a lodging place, he's finally said, okay... I give, I'm going to Egypt. On the way to Egypt, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. Oh boy, scholars love these passages. We can write books and books and books on these passages. He's about to kill him, but Zipporah, that's his wife, took a a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet. She threw it at his feet. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, uh, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Why would God do this? He just talked him into going. Well, it goes back to a much earlier verse. Remember, you're the Israelites sitting here, and Moses is reading this story about himself. And you're going, 
what on earth did you do that God tried to kill you? Can you hear it? Let's put Genesis 17 up there. So God says to Abraham, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep, every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. He had not, he had given up and wandered so far away, he didn't even circumcise his son. He didn't really believe in the Abrahamic covenant. You see, God's not going to let him be a leader until he gets this business taken care of and God is willing to kill him. I said last week we're going to see women begin to appear all throughout the story. It's his wife who not only saves his life, but saves the history of Moses' leadership because God's willing to take his life. That's how he's not playing games because he didn't really believe. This is the turning point in Moses' life right here. So pretty soon after this, we're going to see him standing before Pharaoh with all of the confidence in the world. He had to go through this process right here. So who's the unlikely deliverer? God. God is the deliverer. The question is, how's your faith? Not how's your impact? I don't care about your impact. I care about your faith. Father, thank you. We are grateful. We're grateful for Moses. Grateful for your courage, your willingness to jump right into his life. Grateful, Lord, that you would turn him around and move him in a different direction. Grateful that you feel that way about all of us. You never leave us alone. You come after us. Help us, Lord, to be faithful, knowing full well that you're the one that does the ministry, not us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Gonna ask the uh, ushers to come take the offering. Thanks for being great, uh, generous. You always are.
some of you to come up and prepare communion so we can celebrate it together. The, um, the story that we celebrated communion is the story of Abraham. It's the story of Moses. It's the story of the prophets. It's the story of Jesus. It's a great story. Every, the further we go into Exodus, you're going to see this is a story that we live out 